so excited to be back in your ear, in your car, wherever I am. It's good to be with you. And I apologize, I have got a bit of a cold. And of course, we are upon those seasons of colds and holidays and family and all the things. The beauty of looking at our romantic relationships is they are usually a magnifying glass to the things we're not so great at. I think holidays and being around family, Thanksgiving, Christmas, or whatever your celebration is, really do offer this opportunity, I know this sounds weird, to trigger us, trigger us in a way that they invite our expansion and our growth and a new behavior from us. That's what triggers really do is invite a curious inquiry into where the trigger came from and how to change who you are, how to change your response to the trigger. When we change the response to our triggers, we create a whole different life. Because of course, our prefrontal cortex, the part that's in charge of problem solving and all those sorts of things, it shuts down as soon as we get triggered. And we, our amygdala takes over the reptilian part of our brain and we go into fight, fly, freeze, sometimes a bunch of those things all together. And so in the experience of being around family is the opportunity to create boundaries, to actually look at, you know, because if we have bad boundaries at work or in relationship romantically or with friends, we're going to have really bad boundaries in our families too. And that will be where we have learned them or not learned them. And we often think about boundaries being about protecting oneself from mucky energy, from toxic energy, from toxic relationships. But they're also about containing our own thoughts, feelings, emotions, really boundaries delineate, you know, they create a line between who I am and who you are. And, and that's physically, emotionally, you know, spiritually, all these different ways. And it is also about not allowing my energy to go into someone else's experience or me to project my emotions onto someone else and vice versa. And so really what boundaries do is they preserve wholeness. We are already whole. But boundaries draw a circle around that. And gosh, our greatest work will be instituting boundaries with family. Because there's something about blood that we have received the message that, you know, blood is thicker than water and these loyalties and these ideas. But if our relationships with our family are not healthy, they are going to cost us. And if you have great boundaries, you will have a great life. I promise you that. It is the most important work you will ever do is learning how to separate and honor yourself. And it's hard to do in relationship to other people. It's easy to get your shit figured together, your shit figured out when you are single, right? When you don't have to express your need and hear someone else's opinion about your need or tell someone what you want or require and hear potentially that they don't want to provide you with that. That's why it's so easy to be quote unquote independent but use that as a way of isolating oneself and using standards as a way of creating walls, but are socially acceptable, right? Because someone goes, yeah, I just have high standards, but often they're a way of making us an island so that we don't have to interact with other people. Because maybe what we've experienced is when we're in relationship to other people, we lose ourselves. And of course, the greatest work we will ever do is create boundaries, but learn how to love ourselves and hold on to who we are and be in love. I mean, that is so challenging to do. So because of that, I have a boundaries course and it is perfect timing for the holidays. It's never too late to figure out how to separate who you are, figure out what you value, what you need, all those things. And that's what the course does. It's two weeks. It's a beautiful investment. It's only $98 
and I priced it in that exact place so everyone can access boundaries. It is so important to create boundaries in your life. So all you have to do is go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash create the boundaries. Bit.ly slash create the boundaries. Go register now. I can't wait to, to hear what you think about it. Make sure you tag me on Instagram if you do a story or anything about it. Also, this week, oh man, we dive into the subject of spirituality and religion. I'm so excited to have had this opportunity to chat with Jules Weber. This is the longest episode I've ever done, and that's be- and you got to stick through it because it is powerful and her shares. And I mean, she was part of the purity movement from the Christian church. And she didn't come from a Christian background. So it's interesting the reasons why she was led to it and her journey and her story about it. And religion and spirituality are one of those very triggering things. So for me, I often, I I mean, I got to acknowledge that I still got some work to do in my relationship to the Catholic Church because I grew up Catholic and you'll hear a bit about that. But my relationship to the word God, my relationship to religion and spirituality, and for so many of us, our religion has actually been weaponized um, against us, and we don't often even know that. And so I want you to ex- enter into this podcast episode with an openness to curiosity and triggers of your own about religion and spirituality. As I honor my own, I'm not asking you to do that without me having done that same inquiry and continue to doing that inquiry. But we have to be open to the idea that what we believe might not be right or what we believe might be flawed. And that's not to say that what you believe is flawed or not right. It's just that when we face the world with that perspective and we are open to being wrong, that is one of the most important qualities of a romantic partner is humility and curiosity. We know that kindness and generosity in the research are the two most important qualities of a romantic partner. But I would add to that that humility, the the ownership of the need to do the work and the curiosity of what that work is, and also the curiosity of our own pain and getting to know ourselves. So I invite you to explore this episode with an open mind and to just let your body feel the way it feels as you hear the words and you get to be touched by the beautiful openness of Jules Weber. So without further ado, my great friend and what a lovely, amazing human to come on and share really for one of the first times with so much openness about her journey, her divorce, and her relationship to religion and spirituality. Here we go. You know, I'm excited. This this is like a special moment to have have both a a good digital friend that has become a cellular in-person friend. I love those. And also just such an inspiration and a Texan. I mean, I relate well to Texans because I grew up as, as I think most of you know, in the Texas of Canada in Alberta. So whenever I feel like oil and gas pouring through someone's veins, which it isn't pouring through yours. So that sounded like you work for oil and gas or something, (laughs) but Jules Weber, also known as Julianne Weber. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being here with me. I'm pretty excited because I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. Let's just preface it with that. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's dive in. How do you, what do you go by? Because I called you a femangelist earlier, (laughs) which is like a female evangelist. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know what that would qualify as, but I feel like you, uh, in my experience of you, that you 
embody and teach. I don't want to say femininity because I don't know, because it's not limited to that. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's more like an invitation to face all the things that have Mm -hmm. shaped us. And then with grace, walk through them Mm -hmm. because you just exude grace. So I know one of your love languages is words of affirmation. So maybe I'll just one there. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. God, you know, I th- I think that my work is so shaped by this fundamental belief in me that the motivation behind everything that we do is is that we just crave closeness and intimacy. I think the craving for that shapes our decisions and it shapes our beliefs and it shapes what we choose and our experience of that with other people is is so entirely dictated by our ability to experience intimacy within ourselves and quieting the war that we often feel when we have to disown parts of ourselves in order to belong and healing the pain of that. I, I think is the journey of feminine wholeness and of experiencing the holiness of who we are inherently, which is just, I mean, exquisite, divine love personified. (laughs) So in the exploration of those words of Mm -hmm. ending the war with the parts of ourselves that we sort of eradicate or disconnect from, Mm -hmm. sometimes eradicate in order to belong. Mm -hmm. For me, that's, that's, probably almost everyone's experience unconsciously that they don't know that they hide parts of themselves in order to Mm -hmm. belong. But I I know that there is a personal experience within there for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd like you to speak to that of what do you mean by that? Where would people do that? And if we're speaking in the context of femininity, Mm -hmm. how does that show up and what does it look like to you? It's a long question. It's like 47 questions in one question. (laughs) So if you could just can you, can you like yeah. boil that down? <laughs> yeah, maybe we could draw up a Venn diagram, and then if you could just somehow get back to the beginning, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, so the parts, that yeah. We, you're like, Wait, what was the fucking question? So the parts that we are at war with, yes, that we eradicate or disconnect from. Mm-hmm. So this is not. This is, I mean, in no way exclusive to women. I think just people as children from a very young age, we kind of learned that our feelings and our voices and our needs feel inconvenient and even upsetting to our caregivers. Mm. And, and so the lesson in that and the belief that we take away is that there's something wrong with me. Something about me needs to be suppressed or disowned because I feel that being disowned here. And it's not that that our caregivers or whoever they were, usually our parents, it's not that they that they wanted us to feel that. But when we don't know how to give belonging to all of who we are, we often don't extend that to other people, particularly our children. Mm, that's um, so true. Yeah, because our kids ask us to face so many things in ourselves that are hard to look at. And if we need to, you know, continue to be separate from who we are so that just so that we can feel safe, you know, whether that's our past that we need to feel 
separate from, or whether that's a piece of who we are, our identity um, that wasn't accepted, our kids will, they'll get the message. And so, so many of us got that message, all of us on some level, um, got the message that all of who we are is not okay. And so, I mean, how many different, you know, things did we pick up in life, coping mechanisms and all sorts of different things so that we could survive through the, the suppression of so much of ourselves to belong and to feel intimacy. And as a woman, I experienced that as, you know, a couple expressions of who I am are very welcome and very embraced in the world. And like, like the nurturing expression of who I am, like the mothering expression, like the, the world says to me, you are welcome to mother me. Yeah, that's true. Right? That's for sure. You're you just made me an um. I'm super right? grateful. I was like, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, and it's, it's beautiful and it's, lo- it's like, I love it. It also um, can be objectified. It, people yeah. can tend to demand that for women. Right. And then the world loves like the, um, the sisterly part of me or the friend or um, the part of me that just offers them acceptance and, and an embrace. But um, the parts of me that I didn't feel like were always very embraced were the parts that like my own inner little inner child, you know, the, the place that just felt wounded and didn't know how to heal and needed to be cared for and had legitimate needs. Um, the place in me that's, that feels very sexual and wants sexual intimate closeness and expression and a live expression and open expression. Um, the place in me that's really more of a queen, you know, who knows and owns her dominion and has boundaries and um, doesn't want to take anyone's shit to and, stand in the power of your yeah, expression. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've seen that. That certainly has been true for a long mm-hmm. period of time of what we've inherited in terms of gender roles and relationship. Yeah. You know, and then the silencing of the voice, mm-hmm. um, which is especially true for women or anyone who identifies as mm-hmm. women. What are the primary ways that you've experienced that, that like self disownership? Is that a word? I just sure. Yeah, I mean, it made sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, in the ways that I've experienced it, I would say authentic pursuit of of interests. So, mm. you know, I was taught to become a provider, to make a certain amount of money, um, be able to have a house and kids, and take care of my partner and my family. So, I did finance, which is I've never taken an Ambien, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure. Doing that degree was the equivalent to taking a lot of ambient. Mm. It's like a sleeping pill on yeah. sleeping pills. So there's that. I would say that because I grew up in the 80s and 90s as a young man, I also experienced don't don't be controlling, don't be aggressive, mm-hmm. because the messaging. If we were blessed enough to be around feminist movements, which I mm-hmm. was because of my mother and. Then the women that I grew up with are yeah. all really incredible, powerful women. Mm-hmm. It was definitely to not, what I learned about men is that they're bad, that they're rapists, that they're murderers, mm-hmm. that they're dangerous. Yeah. So I think it was a lot to like, I confused that having boundaries, I thought it was being controlling. So yeah. I didn't have boundaries. I would say that I was very much like yeah. suppression of my voice too, because mm-hmm. I was afraid yeah. of hurting people. Hurting feelings, which of course comes back to childhood too. Totally. Always comes back to childhood. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, 
you know, it's interesting how that could be a totally different experience for depending on who your caregivers are, what culture you grew up in or what religion you had, Mm -hmm. you know, like how all of those things can shape us in such ways that are so nuanced. Yeah. So nuanced. Because you could hear your mother suppress her voice. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess you wouldn't hear that, but observe your mother suppress her voice Mm -hmm. and then decide to be loud as fuck. Yeah. You know, and like become a bulldozer and ensure you're heard, Mm -hmm. which of course doesn't get you heard either. It causes you to experience significance, but not, no one connects with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, And how isolating too, just for yourself to always have to live at an extreme or feel like there's not a way for me to just feel like, oh, I'm just okay right where I am. And I can feel confused and I can voice that and somebody can help me integrate that. But we're kind of, I've I've heard this saying that children are great recorders, but terrible interpreters. (laughs) So we kind of- That's so good. Yeah. Because we leave them in charge of interpreting their own. Yes. And we don't help them do it oftentimes. And and to be honest, like parents in this day and age have so much on their plates that we often feel like we just need to get compliance out of our kids so that life can work. You know, we're trying to do so much. And I know that I can get into that lane with my two girls that I'm, you know, I'm a single mom and there's a lot that I need to handle. And, but she's, she's watching me and she's learning and she's forming so many different beliefs. And I already can see she's going to have her own pain here that she needs to heal from as conscious as I even am, which who even knows, I can't even put like an amount on that, you know? And don't worry, the universe will remind you that you're not. (laughs) Whenever I say something relative to that, I'm like, cosmic two Uh, by four on its way. Goodness. Absolutely. So yeah. So we're just kind of parents are, we're in survival mode sometimes. And that just has its own effect on our kids and they have their own personalities and we don't always understand them. And so one of the messages that I kind of received um, throughout, and it's not just your caregivers, it can be different places. You're a teacher, you know, in school, it could be. I had a soccer coach, one of them. Yeah. He was a horrible messenger. Oh yeah. There's so many different ways that we sort of give authority to people to tell us who we are and how we need to be in the world. And that for me came through unhealthy friendships with women growing up. And, but shame was kind of how I interpreted so much of who I was. If I felt like I had needs, I didn't know how to express or how to own. And that was a burden for somebody and they didn't like that. I interpreted shame about who I was like, Oh, I don't, I don't actually deserve to have needs. I don't actually deserve connection. There's something fundamentally wrong with me and broken about me because I don't know how to make you happy. And I didn't know like any purpose beyond that, beyond just, Do you mean as a child someone. in yeah. your family system? Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. It's a, it, I think really the transition from childhood to adulting, some of us never make that transition because mm-hmm. we are raised by people who are still sort of children sometimes. Yeah. You know, they're still in their trauma. They're still in their... Mm-hmm. I mean, like when was the first time that people started to actually think about how they think? You know, that is a privilege really mm-hmm. in a lot of ways when you're not trying to meet food, water, shelter, sex, you know, your Maslow's yeah. lowest needs. 
I mean, philosophy was ultimately born of wealth. Mm-hmm. That people all of a sudden had time to think about why mm-hmm. we're here and consciousness and mm-hmm. those things. And I think really that transition is starting to take dominion mm-hmm. over how I feel about me. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's like rescuing the child from the dysfunction. For sure. You know, to finally say like, you made all this shit mean that you suck. Yeah. Or that you're not good, but really you are, and they sucked. Yeah. But man, that is because in that I think is it requires like compassion for your parents' journey mm-hmm. to say. Yeah. And I think a powerful way to do that is to see your your parents as the children of parents. Yeah. Then all of a sudden it it moves them into a hierarchy as well, and for we're sure. like, oh wait, there's a family tree of dysfunction. Mm-hmm. I don't know any family that doesn't have some form, right? Because that's just what it means yeah, to be a human system. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and we feel like, and some of us need to live in this place. I certainly did, where I, I held it against my parents for, that they weren't perfect with me. I had about a one year of like, yeah. I, I, I was like starting to see the flaws within our system mm-hmm. that were not their fault, but their inheritance yeah. too. Mm-hmm. For sure. And you have to sort of be able to embrace and really live in that anger that you weren't free to express when you were younger. Mm. Right. Because if I, if I was upset or if if my feelings were hurt for them, that meant something about them. And I, that was not okay (laughs) for me. Fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah, I've received the message. Like it's not okay for you to be angry here. Like you should be thankful. We've, we've, and there's, there's this message like, like we just, we don't know how to integrate any of that discomfort here or a trigger or anything like that. And so. So was it all positivity and gratitude and. No, it was, it was just like not positivity and gratitude, but, but just not like a ton of freedom. It was just, you know, be small. And, and, and I got my parents kind of in small doses and throughout childhood, they were um, gone quite a bit. They were both in the military. And they would be, you know, away for a year at a time, sometimes longer. And so I was frequently at home with one single parent or another. And the just the attachment trauma of that for me came out as as like sheer, just intense meatiness. And I, you know, became a teenager and the talk with, with my mom and we all need our moms. Like we need our moms. We learn, we inherit how we see our bodies and how we see um, men and, and relationships and friendships with women from our mothers. And uh, my mom just, she worked a ton. She was gone a ton. I didn't see like much of her, her own like personal relating in life. And then I had huge, huge neediness. And for me that, that just kind of, came out in, I just, I took that into friendships and into dating. I didn't know what to do with boys <laughs> and, and I didn't know what to do with the feeling that would come inevitably when something like didn't go well with a boy and I would feel shamed for that, or he would talk about it to somebody. Mm. And, and that's where things would frequently end up. Just me feeling abandoned, not only by myself, but by, by somebody else, especially. And I would Oh, I just, I've just felt like, oh, the answer here would just be for me to be better or do better and take all of the responsibility for any relational pain, a hundred percent, you know? And 
yeah, like there's nothing about me that's inherently lovable. Like that was sort of just what I picked up. And, and for whatever reason, I mean, I don't think this is my parents' fault by any means. I mean, cause they have always loved me so much, but just from the, my, my earliest childhood memory is shame. Like it's just shame of being too much and feeling like a burden. Like, um, what did you do in response to that? I was quiet and small and lonely. Mm-hmm. I think loneliness is just kind of like a major emotional like signature of my childhood. Yeah. And, but I was like outward, like very bubbly, made friends easily. Um, but I wanted, I just kind of wanted to like attach to somebody that seemed significant to me so that I could feel protected and safe. And so I was kind of always like, making friends with the popular girl in school or gosh, like that, that kind of ended up in me finding like youth groups and religion, you know, and a a Christianity that I thought it was just saying to me, you know, erase everything that shames you. Like Jesus can just erase all of it. Like this story. So good of Jesus. So it's so nice of him. Just touches. (laughs) thing and goodbye shame yeah yeah so like when i'd never felt freedom to celebrate anything about who i was um i've had this religion who i mean i i interpreted certain things of it because of my own pain mm-hmm. like i can't put all of this just on christianity in general but um but I, I felt like what it was telling me was you know your sexual nature and your needs and your voice and your expression are the root of why you feel so much pain. And those things are why people reject you. And so I'll just come and just, you know, make your expression match the expression of Jesus and these men in the Bible and really just like idolize that message and uplift it. And those taking on that set of beliefs gave, it gave me a sense of belonging. And so it also gave if I'm hearing you correctly, yeah. gave reason for why you experienced shame. It did. Yeah. yeah. Like it didn't say you actually have the right to a voice and expansiveness Mm-mm. and taking up space and yeah. being in your own solidarity. Mm-hmm. But that, oh, th- there's actually a reason why. But hey, yeah, just step into the shoes of JC and mm-hmm. everything is... Yeah. So it, it just kind of confirmed my own interpretation of life, which yeah. is like the way that you get to belong is by permanently abandoning parts of yourself. And that makes sense, I guess, when you think about the narratives of most female characters in the Bible, mm-hmm. you know, that that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But you grew up with religion. I did not. Yeah, I was born into a religion. Mm-hmm. That's true. I did not get to choose my spirituality mm-hmm. till I chose it. So mm-hmm. I was born into being a Catholic. My mom is from Dublin. So that's like Catholic. She's on, from Dublin? I didn't yeah, realize that. She's like, that's like Catholic on Catholic steroids. Yeah, so like that's like Italian as Catholic as it gets. Or Mexican, <laughs> you know, like they're all the Filipino, like these heavily. Uh-huh. Ca- and I say all those cultures because I grew up going to Catholic school with all of these yeah. cultures, Chileans. You know, like just fascinating to observe the when you are born into a spiritual practice, then you don't question the spiritual practice because mm-hmm. these are just the dogmas and doctrines that are inherent yeah. in your culture or your experience. Mm-hmm. And my my grandma from Ireland, 
my my dad's side and my grandma and grandpa and stuff in Canada, they were not. My dad was, I, I would say, he identified actually as an atheist when I was a kid. I, I'm pretty sure, but we went to church and yeah. he went to church. And I, this might be wrong, but my memory of that is that we we went because as I got older, it sort of was like because my mom wanted to go. Um, but my grandma from Ireland never actually came to my parents' wedding because my dad was divorced before my mom. Mm, and had a child yeah. with his first wife, my sister. And so, you know, we, there was a lot of like, my grandma didn't even show up on an important day in her daughter's life because Catholicism taught her that a divorced man is a bad man. And yeah. then she met my dad and loved him, you know? So I've seen a lot of the, I mean, that's just a tip of the iceberg of the pain that I've observed yeah. through the Catholic church. And I think it's, you don't have to Google very long to find a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I did definitely grow up in the, my relationship to the word God was uh, disconnected till mm. I was probably in my mid thirties. And probably disembodied too. Like the message is God lives outside of me. Love lives outside of me. Someone else decides if you're good or bad. Yeah. You go to yeah. heaven or hell. Yeah. You know, like all these ways that we induce shame, sexuality, same thing. Like yeah. no one taught me like what to do when I'm around a boob. <laughs> <laughs> like, just don't be around a boob. Yeah. I'm like, but boobs are everywhere. Yeah. You know, I don't mean to simplify that, but that was like when you're in grade eight and a male and like you're going through puberty, and you're yeah. not being educated. You're a, your one education is just abstinence. Just stay away. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, all of the research supports that abstinence as an education does not work. Absolutely. At all. No, it doesn't. More teen pregnancy, more STIs, more, you know, mm -hmm. like. Eventually, no, religion won't get the message with that. But but ideally, <laughs> the people who follow the extremes of them will. Mm -hmm. You would hope. But I know for me, the question started to happen when I felt the pain of what was true within my soul mm -hmm. in conflict with what was being taught. Yeah. And I could feel those in, in hindsight. I can feel those nuances, those like, oh, this isn't okay. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa. This is this is actually hurtful. I feel shame because I'm inherently I have desire because I'm mm -hmm. a human. It's funny that we're all born from at least one orgasm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> at least one. I can't yeah. speak for the other side. <laughs> and if they're lucky, maybe multiple yeah. on one or both sides. <laughs> but I think that that's fascinating that we are the creation of an orgasm and we are terrified. Yeah. We erase that experience or we erase the idea of that from this idea of children. Like that they're all like, uh, like Mary was a virgin and then like even this, we just like totally sex wash her. Like, yeah, she's not even, yeah. That aspect of her does like, does not belong. I, I mean, the, how we tell that story is so fascinating because mm -hmm. I'm sure at one point it's like the game of telephone. Where you like say like, hey, tomato in the first year, and then twenty seven years years later, it's like cabbage. It's mm -hmm. no, my, it's like rocket ship. It has nothing to do with the first thing. Yeah. And I think of like when this first happened, and you know, assuming this story has any actual truth to it. Yeah. The there likely was a child out of wedlock in a culture mm -hmm. that absolutely did not allow that. So yeah. then we spin the narrative. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine if someone said today, like a couple teens bang and have a baby by accident and they're like, we never actually had sex. Yeah. This is just yeah, Jesus. Totally. They'd be like, 
I'm sorry, you're schizophrenic. You have multiple personality. <laughs> like, I just think that's so fascinating that yeah. we are able to use our minds for criticism when it doesn't conflict with our identity. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I, and God, I remember being, I want to say 15 or 16, 16 in, in, you know, part of this youth group. And we had this like, cause I lived my adolescence in purity culture. This explain God, purity how do you, culture. how do you say what that is? You know, um, purity meaning no sexual contact. Is that right? Yeah. Well, so for me, the definition of purity was like, you know, you're a virgin, you save yourself, save yourself. God, dear God, that just that phrase is still like triggering to me to say it. Um, for <laughs> yeah, you save yourself for marriage, you know, and so for your husband, for That's your so husband, good of you. yes, yeah. you're a gift for him. him. Yeah, yeah. So there's this banquet and we're all dressed up, you know, boys and girls both. And we like take this pledge. We just pledge. That, Tell me about the pledge. Um, I don't remember exactly what the pledge said, but the point of the evening was that we were just going to declare that we weren't going to have sex until we got married. This was like a gala. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. It was like a fa- like cotillion or something. And do you like, like the youth write it on it. something or do I you, think there was like a certificate. Sign, I bet you signed something. Yeah. Like well, I think there was good. something like that. And I remember that night, so I was wearing this dress. I felt so beautiful in it. I had borrowed it from a friend and it kind of like showed some of my back. And um, I think afterward, my friends and I had gone to this like place to go and just have dinner and have a good time. And and you're like looking hot. Oh, I'm looking hot. Oh man, at a purity 16. dinner? This is like such at danger. A, right? I'm signing a thing <laughs> as I'm looking at an open back dress. Like, yeah, for sure I won't have <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, there was a guy that night. He was like one of the youth group staff guys, you know? So I like totally probably had a crush on him or something. He was, I don't know, college age. And he was, he, but he was like noticing me and breaking I mean, the like, rules, buddy, yeah. breaking the rules. And you're a leader. <laughs> Shocking how yeah. that happens. That never happens. But I, I remember feeling this shame over just being noticed hmm. in that way. And, and I think really from that moment on, and, and definitely before that, I mean, because I was, I was, like I said, I didn't grow up in this, but I had experienced so much shame just for like having crushes on boys and how things would kind of play out. And this like deep feeling of not enoughness and inadequacy and feeling ugly and unseen. I didn't feel, I didn't like how I felt around around boys. Like it just, it felt so scary to me and I didn't have a whole lot of guidance from my mom about it. And so all the shame I felt within myself, I mean, I like welcomed the purity culture dialogue for me. I guess it it like like, fed right into shame. It did. And it was like a path to certain self-acceptance. Like if I can just, well, if I just don't have sex, then I don't put myself at risk of being rejected, of being abandoned, of being yeah, of, this man, of someone sure. else shaming me of a, a rep. It was like a way to preserve my reputation that I was uh, so important to me, like this, like wholesome, pure, sweet girl. You can, know? Can I ask? As a, I guess if you say, "Can I ask?" and then you ask the question, you're not really. <laughs> so can I ask? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> okay, so in the experience of your childhood, and you spoke about just your mom and dad being gone, switching spots, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Did you become a perfectionist? And like a high performer, like good grades, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, like, that makes sense. Because then sure. 
that same, like, I don't want to be a bother. Mm-hmm. Notice me. Mm-hmm. I won't cause any trouble. Mm-hmm. I'll be pure. Oh, it's such a goody two wow. shoes. Yeah. And I, I, was I a bit felt of a goody two very shoes in conflict with myself. I just had too many opinions. But then, how did you become a goody two shoes? I just wanted to not cause trouble in my family. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to be a bother. I was the youngest. Yeah. But I did become definitely not, I did not have a perfectionist. <laughs> That never suffered from that yeah. survival strategy. Mine was to entertain and be charismatic <laughs> yeah, for and sure. funny and never just sit within the silence of myself. You know, yeah. I think that's why in the last three, four months, I've been really like experiencing you, yeah. the deliciousness of that. You have been. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. So, so yeah. your the purity movement has swept into your perfectionism. Yes. Yeah. The purity movement was God. Is this in the oh. South? This is in Texas? No. Where is this? this is just like youth group, evangelical oh, yeah. culture. I, I mean, Christian it's everywhere. It's not that, unique yeah. to the South, I would say. They're all suffering um, in their desires. But there was certainly so a funny. lot of it there. All my Christian friends who are like, I don't want to have sex. And then they go bang a bunch of people. And this uh-huh. is both male and female. And then they experience so much shame yeah. that they go back to bumping the Bible. And mm-hmm. they go into this like, I'll never do that again. Yeah, And then they right? get around another person and yeah. who inherently they're attracted to. Yeah. So they don't have a healthy relationship to their desire. Yeah. Because it lives with shame. So mm-hmm. they experience desire, which unlocks the same cycle of a lack of self-control because mm-hmm. they don't explore it safely. Yeah. And then they end up in... Because you can't live abandoning that part of yourself. You can't. Like, it doesn't It doesn't work. We're constantly... Like that, just that conflict I felt within myself, like being noticed by the boy when I had the pretty dress on, on the night that I was like pledging to save myself from my, I mean, cause there was a lot of things movie, in that too. That scene, you right? know, just that like make be, her yeah, a great like, movie. Uh, a great director could really like capture the conflict. Oh, like, and in the her, eyes, the face. look, yeah. you know, <laughs> that internal. Yeah. For sure. Cause I did feel that. And, and I remember like that same year, um, like really having a crush on a boy and like feeling like I had to hide it. Like he was interested in me and we, I went on my first date and I didn't tell my, any of my friends about it. I didn't even talk to my parents about it. Like they, they kind of knew that there was a boy and I was going to see a boy one night, but I was, I remember trying to like minimize what it was. And my mom kind of saying, you know, Julian, like what you're talking about going somewhere with a boy by yourself. And you like, that's a date. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like a date to me, you know, and her trying to help me just own that. Um, and me just not wanting to, Did you, you know, have food and you're out in the evening and you, yes. just, yeah, and like, it was such a, called sweet, a date, by the way, so sweet. Like I should have just been able to enjoy that and feel excited about it at the time and talk about it to, you know, and, and I probably did. Like I was group? so excited and giddy about like, it. Could you get back to youth group and be like, Hey, I had a date last night. No, no. But but we did light petting. That's not necessarily there. <laughs> <laughs> did you guys use that term? Because we use that in the Catholic school. I never really did. It was so much, weird. I was like, that so, particular hold term. on, the word pet? Like, I have a dog. Yeah. Do you just like put <laughs> the boob and wipe it? Like, because there wasn't porn at the time. Not that porn's a great sexual education tool, yeah, but I mean, yeah. it, there wasn't, like, if I wanted to download a picture of a naked woman, mm-hmm. that shit was dial up. I, it was like, <laughs> and like, I'd wait. And then it would load and you'd be waiting for the nipples to load because a boob without a nipple just feels not complete. Mm. And then you just get like uh, now. Well, because that's and that's where you're having to like take all of your curiosity. Right. Because I mean, where else can you? Everywhere else is bra section. Yeah. It's 
and I'm so I'm about 10 years younger than you. So for me that it was a little bit more accessible. Like I remember seeing pornography for the first time as a middle schooler. Oh man, I saw a Playboy magazine and yeah. I remember being like, "What?" Yeah. Oh, like, cuz it was for you it was were... magazines. And they're like wrapped in plastic at the store and Yeah, they were. Yeah. They used to be wrapped in plastic. They're not you, anymore. Well, I took them out of the plastic. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> So anyway, but I I welcomed purity culture for myself because it felt like a certain path to being able to finally approve of myself. Mm. And I, and I didn't make it very far. I had sex for the first time a year later with the boy who I you, went on the first date you with. You broke that rule. I broke it. You bad woman. <laughs> and you know what? At the time, I I mean it was a it was such a it was a sweet experience. Like I yeah. it was beautiful. But I re- I remember afterward going oh like I've lo- I've now lost my virginity like my virginity is gone something about me is now missing and I need oh, to wow. like make sure that I feel badly about this so like something's in- now wrong with me like I am tainted like I remember even where I was standing in his house like in the living room after. Afterward, like immediately or next day well, or week. No, I mean, it was like a few minutes later. Like we, you know, we kind of like, oh, so um, like after the actual experience. Yeah, after okay. the experience, like the in the next few minutes or something. I just was sort of reflect, re- very reflective, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, okay, like now I'm a different woman. I'm a oh. different kind of woman, and I took on this identity of like something's damaged now. Like mm. my, ah, that just I'm starting hurts to my cry. Heart. Yeah, that hurts my heart um, to hear. Because I think about her and I'm just like, that was not fair to you. And God, I've done so much work and so much healing. Like, I don't even blame that narrative anymore because I was so eager. I ate it up. Like, I already had that wounding before that moment. The purity. Sort of the, the, sh- the the shame wounding yeah. that I had like since I was very small that something's wrong with you that something's yeah, missing totally. that you're flawed the shame core yeah and so I just assigned that to my sexuality even more so mm-hmm. in that moment and it it affected everything about the way that I showed up with men after that it was like I am now the damaged one I am not as worthy as whoever. And honestly, like the dialogue that we had, we had about that at the time. And I think the church still has this is like what I interpreted um, from the social environment around me was like, if you're a woman that's had sex and you weren't married, then like, there's something about you that's damaged. Even if, even if like, you've kind of like done your work or you've repented or whatever it was, it's like, I've, I felt like I was inherently like unrepairable, but if you're a man that has had a history of having sex and whatever, and you, but you've like repented, then you're like amazing. Cause you owned it. You were that, vulnerable. Yeah. Like the, to the glory of God. Yeah. But for a woman, it's wow. like, we didn't get to have that. I didn't get yeah. to have that victory in my story. And I, mm. I had a moment. Um, yeah, and I feel that. Yeah. Big time. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel, I felt like the situation could be the same for either gender, but the story was like very different. That's, I mean, that follows the sexual story that like, yeah. if you're a man who's had sex, you get social status. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're a woman who's had sex with more than one partner, 
yeah. you're a slut, you know, like yeah. just this, which can cause so many different things. But to think of how that merges with the religion story of mm-hmm. like, if you're a man who's had sex and you turn towards God and repent, then yeah. oh, you should probably become a minister. Mm-hmm. But if you're, you should teach from your place of vulnerability yeah. and repentance. But if you're a woman, then there's like a less than, and and I say these words with such tenderness for the impact of them, but the, yeah. that there's like a dirtiness. Mm-hmm. And that breaks my heart to think that there are yeah. people walking around thinking they're dirty because they are human mm-hmm. and they have desire. And, and so if you're listening to this and, and any of this resonates in any way, yeah. You're not broken. No, there's nothing there's wrong. Nothing broken about you. Like, oh, and I've even just in the the rewriting of that story of my first time having sex. You know, I, I, I have allowed myself to now see that as a beautiful thing for me. Like that was a choice that I made with a boy that I really felt like I loved and who was wonderful to me, and I, I enjoyed myself. And I wouldn't change it now. Like who well, I am. It was actually now, a beautiful experience. It was. Yeah. It was. The only thing not beautiful about it was me consciously putting on shame and unworthiness afterward. Yeah. That was it. And honestly, during the experience, I was very in conflict with myself because I knew like this pledge, like this, uh, what I was giving up as I was doing this. And so I wasn't really able to even be fully present during it which I would never want for a woman. Like your first time having, like I have a client right now who just, just started having sex, like in the last year for the first time, you know, and I'm helping her really sink into just the celebration of that and loving that and owning that as like a piece of her that she is so free to explore and how that will impact her ability to show up fully as herself when she's dating and when she's just Mm -hmm. navigating this world, meeting her own needs, deciding how she wants to show up. Like she will show up from such a more grounded place of power than um, I felt like I ever really did before I got married because I just, you know, dating was like, I'm the one applying for acceptance because I'm missing something. Like I'm waiting for you to choose me to validate that I'm not broken, that I'm still worthy of being chosen. Mm -hmm. No, and that's mm, man. And and so many people date from that space. Mm -hmm. Like I like you if you like me. Right. Like I'm waiting for you to tell me, and then I choose you back. I Mm -hmm. don't choose you. Yeah. I'm waiting to be chosen, and Mm -hmm. I think of how many people, both for myself too, so I can say it's true for my experience as a male, but I think it would be true for any human is that desire, healthy desire, Mm -hmm. which is normal, you know, desire, attraction is in conflict with Mm -hmm. an ideology or an identity that we think there's something wrong with us to accommodate the belief Mm -hmm. as opposed to seeing that the belief itself is flawed. Yeah. So any religion, any culture, anything that teaches that sexuality and desire are bad, Mm -hmm and humans are inherently sexual will cause the human to feel like there's something wrong with them Mm -hmm. as opposed to something wrong with the culture or the ideology. Yeah, for sure. Because if you turn towards a human system and a Mm -hmm. belief system and you're in conflict with it, 
I mean, it wasn't that long ago that you got killed. It's still yeah. in some places you do. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a very recent time where you're actually allowed to say, that's bullshit. And mm-hmm. you don't get fucking roasted. But I know, like, we will say that on this podcast to however many thousands of people listen to it. And we can just say that freely. Yeah, like, I, every like once in a while, I get a little bit of hate mail where it's like, <laughs> Catholic Church isn't bad. And I'm like, sure. I mean aspects of it yeah and spirituality in and of itself is so essential it's it's part of that's what is that's why it's so easy to manipulate a human through spirituality because of their fear of death Mm -hmm. and so it's so easy to manipulate through spirituality but i was thinking when you spoke earlier how the 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 purity movement matched your pain yeah and i thought isn't that fascinating that in all expressions of spirituality including modern spirituality Mm -hmm. like the universe yeah all that stuff if we don't know our trauma, our belief system will match our trauma. Mm-hmm. So we will all of a sudden start to see that the doctrines and dogmas of that specific belief system mm-hmm. will accommodate what we believe is flawed about us. Yeah, That's yeah. That's so interesting. I never thought about that. Like even think of how a lot of the modern view of uh, polyamory, mm-hmm. which, hey, don't get me wrong, all relationships are hard to navigate. Yeah. Add sure. six or seven people in there and you got a real smorgasbord <laughs> of trauma. Yeah. Relationship. I don't know how you have the time, but that's amazing. <laughs> but I think what's fascinating about that is sometimes what I see with all types of relational expression mm-hmm. is that they just fit the avoidance of intimacy, mm-hmm. which is, not, I'm not saying that's always true about polyamory, but yeah. I'm saying that it, Often modern forms of spirituality and belief systems just accommodate what we don't understand and our own trauma that we don't want to look at. So when it's chosen from a place of wholeness or helps remind us of our wholeness, that's different than helping remind us of our flaws. Absolutely, for sure. And I always say this when people ask me about open relationships, and I would say the same thing about religion. I would say the same thing about, truthfully, anything. Like I I don't think it's the, the thing the religion, the relationship container, whatever it is that really matters the most. I think it's the intention that we bring to Mm -hmm. it. And are you conscious of that intention? Are you present the whole time? Can you do it sober? Mm -hmm. If you can't do it sober, don't do it. (laughs) My first time was uh, with a woman I loved Mm -hmm. who was my first like real girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening, thank you for that beautiful experience. (laughs) Um, But because I think of just all the things we learn, like virginity is painful, mm-hmm. like neither, you know, that they're, Hyman's going to bray, all these different mm-hmm. things that are, is also a lot of miseducation. Yeah. And we had sex at a party after we, not in the middle of the party, don't worry, it wasn't <laughs> one of those, you know, we went off to the bedroom uh, and we were both <laughs> drinking, but not like heavily intoxicated or anything yeah. just like the amount to lower inhibition yeah. and anxiety of but i look back and and it was a beautiful experience and i'm so happy that i shared that experience with someone that i loved mm-hmm. and, uh, at least i had the model of relationship from my parents that made that really important mm-hmm. for me in that time but i remember listening to esther perel speaking about how because we teach sex as a separate subject from mm-hmm. relationship yes. in north america it becomes a subject that lives on its own outside of relation. And so what happens is, is because we don't empower in it and actually teach it, we teach it as a biology. Yeah. Not like this is how I like to be touched. This is what consent is. This Mm -hmm. is, she said that then often we are 
we want to not be present for it because mm-hmm. there's shame present with it. Yeah. And I thought like, wow, that was so resonant for me that, that how beautiful could it have even been more so had I just been sober and present to the anxieties to, mm. and to share that with yeah. her and her share it with me. And for sure, you know, like it was something that needed to be numbed and yeah. escaped as opposed to like a path for even deeper intimacy. Well, what's wrong with me that I just broke all these rules too? Yes. Although as Cause you were probably to, feeling that same internal conflict that oh, I was feeling yeah. the first time I, yeah. At that point though, I was like starting to be like, fuck this shit. Like none <laughs> of this actually makes any sense. I was starting to rebel. Yes. You were diving deep into purity. Yeah. Did you continue down the purity path with knowing like now that your virginity had been surrendered or mm-hmm. whatever the term might be? Yeah. Um, and which is fascinating how you said a part of you was now missing as opposed mm-hmm. to a part of you had come to sort of a completion of whole of, of experience in embodying yes, your sexuality. Yeah. That language was fascinating. Totally. And, and I want to even just interject, interject for, for women whose first sexual experience is non-consensual too. Like, mm-hmm. what are we saying to them as well? Like how, how much more wounding is that to someone who it, it wasn't their choice yeah. to it's have sex away. for the first. Yeah. And so now not only have you been traumatized, but you're damaged. Like I, like I put on that story myself that I was damaged and I like lovingly chose to have sex. And so like the, un, the unworthiness that comes along with the trauma and the self-abandonment of that being non-consensual, like it makes me want, want to like throw like anyone that ever interpreted that, any woman that interpreted that from any narrative of Christianity, it just makes me want to throw Christianity into a dumpster. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like I just, I can't. It took me a long time to come back to some sort of healthy. Uh, it did, me too. I still can't turn towards and like step into something like Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can step into, I think one of the modern ways in which younger people are interpreting religion is because we have such a melting pot yeah. in Canada and the U.S. and I think in anywhere that is really open to immigration. Mm-hmm. That we have such a melting pot to different ideologies and, yeah, and they're sure. all often in conflict, but also in cohesion. They're often the same thing, mm-hmm. just expressed differently. But I think one thing that's been sort of a beautiful thought is like that we have these salad bar religions that we go mm. and pick and choose the things we like, which is, which I've always noticed that that actually as a child, as a teenager, I've always been somewhat outspoken. Mm-hmm. So it's, I noticed it and I would say it where I would notice that people said they believed in something, Mm -hmm. but then lived a secret life doing something else. I did that. I I was, (laughs) I had this double life. I I was like, as opposed to just like adopting the belief system that makes you feel good about your choices, right? But But we can't, we can't do that when belonging is threatened. No, Mark. No, 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 no. You don't get to choose that because you don't have dominion over your own beliefs. You don't, you can't belong with yourself. Your parents, their character, their identity be not your parents, but. Mm-hmm. If you're cat Christian or Catholic or Muslim or whatever, and you start to question the ideologies and mm-hmm. the beliefs, you now comment, you call into question the people who taught you yeah. that. And they don't want that because mm-hmm. they've asked all those questions too, but yeah. they put them in a nice little box and hid it in a corner yeah. and then used alcohol to numb that little box. They don't pretend they don't know exists mm-hmm. that has a bow on it. Mm-hmm. 
but inside it is all the things we know to be true that we don't want to look at. Yeah. And I think that too, and without making too many generalizations too, because we don't, I mean, religion is such a wide sweep. There's a lot of it depends. And if you're triggered by this conversation, the beautiful thing is to offer grace because when words have never been said in a certain yeah. order, yeah. we still have to have the conversation. We do. Yeah. But so much of the intention that we do bring, I mean, that's why it's, it's called, you can use religion as a form of spiritual bypass. Like, Yeah, it becomes a weaponization. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely did with me. But for me, it was just a ticket to belonging. Mm-hmm. It, that was all that it was. So like, beautiful. And when That's I didn't what it have, is for so many people. Yeah. And when I didn't have that belonging anymore, it's like, you know, this youth group I was in, when I moved and I switched schools and I was in a different culture where youth group wasn't a thing, I did what those kids did. Those kids weren't doing purity culture. Those kids were like, they were drinking and going to parties. They're and, like, you want to be a virgin? Yeah. Right. I didn't, I like threw all the, you know, and I felt the judgment of my former community seeing me in my new life. And I, so I just felt conflict all the time. And then did they say anything to you? Um, like these kids are a bad influence on you. No, but their silence was loud. Mm. Mm, the silent judgment. Yes. Like, and I, well, and that's I was projecting too, probably so. a lot of that have, but having known how I talked about people that did that when I was a part of that yeah. youth group, like I knew that, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Jules, like she, she, she's gone. She's left it. Like may Jesus find her again. <laughs> totally. May she be blessed by the grace of God. Yeah. I think I was a pastor in my past life where I like got to yell on a stage. You're a pastor now. Amen. Amen. You Send are. money now. Send money. <laughs> Just kidding. Don't. I'm I'm kidding. No, like you, you are. I mean, you like nurture your community so vibrantly. And so, I mean. I love my people. You do love your people. Well, our people, it. I'm part of it. I love our people. Because I certainly don't see myself as a leader of it. I mm-hmm. see myself as part of a, a, a collective confusion, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways. <laughs> like I'm in the trenches. I just happen to have a microphone mm-hmm. and I happen to think about things probably in a way that other people would be like, can you just, <laughs> I don't drink. So I'd be like, can we just have a scotch and shut the fuck up? And I'm like, listen, we should, what about human systems when it comes to, you know, like this yeah. stuff It's so fascinating to me because my whole experience, at least I don't, it'll probably change the way I articulate it. Yeah. But is to okay. release, to help release people as I release myself from prisons that we built around ourselves that we don't even know we built. Yeah. You know, and that, that don't even exist, but they exist, Mm -hmm. you know, they exist in a non-material sense, but they exist in a, in using belonging Mm -hmm. as a weapon. Yeah. Where people who are in those systems don't even know they're using it too, because it was used on them. Mm -hmm. And so if we can just wake up within the system and then, that's the hard part is it's so scary because you feel so lost when yeah. you finally pay attention Totally, because you go, wait, none of this has ever made sense. Mm-hmm. I chose this. What the fuck am I doing? Choosing something that hurts me yeah. and hurts other people. And then the shame train hits us. Mm-hmm. So this is that. Okay. So I yeah. have. No, I mean. So as you experience the, the, I was going to say the <laughs> removal of your virginity, whatever <laughs> you then continue in the purity group well i mean it just that sort of be that was like my path to belonging so if i ever like went outside of that and tried things you know and then 
experienced pain from just not knowing what I was doing, from dating from a place of unworthiness, from whatever, then it was like, okay, I can always just go back to the Christian path. So did you do that? (laughs) So I sort of went in and out of that a couple of times. Like I was in like a high school youth group and then I was in another high school where I just So did you just quit them? Um, well, I moved a lot. So it was, Um, it was like, what, what does the culture here do? What does the culture there do? So you became sort of like a, a a chameleon. I just wanted belonging to whatever. That's all I wanted. Which that's so yeah. beautifully articulated because that is what everyone does yeah. until they don't do it. But you, mm-hmm. because of moving, became a master. Yeah, I had to. Yeah, for survival. Yeah. So I think, but in college, I was in, you know, part of this like major, you know, Christian student ministry. And I was like sleeping with my boyfriend. And I knew that that was like not okay. But is that most people in these <laughs> And I felt groups? like I was living a double life. And someone, someone like called the ministry leader person and told them, told on me. And How did she they like know? kind did of called me in. <laughs> I don't know. Right. I think, I think I know who it was. And it was the boyfriend of my roommate at the time. If he's listening, loose lips sink ships, buddy. <laughs> what do they say? It, uh, he's lucky he didn't end up in a river. Yeah, well, he was in the just same. Just kidding. That wasn't a death threat. No, that was, that was, that was, that was just. No. <laughs> it was a joke. It was a bad joke. But it was a, actually, if you're listening, <laughs> stop. don't just tell stop. secrets. <laughs> anyway, but I but he I He was probably having sex, too. I was That's very, the irony. Yeah, I, I I think that he was. Oh, what a dick. Um, yes. So, so I got called in and I just, I felt so much shame. She, like, brought this up to me. Like, hey, we know that you're doing this. And. She was probably having sex. I don't think she was, hmm. but maybe she had one of those pairs of underwear I mean, with the little digital stimulator. I think she was stimulator. very like, <laughs> you know, I've you never know I'm about? heard of those. What? No. Where you have like a remote and you can stimulate the the clitoral area? No, I know these sales for these are going to go way up. Okay, <laughs> I should have had an affiliate link for these <laughs> for sure. Right? Let's find out. Wait, this and so like out. someone else can be holding the remote. Yeah. I saw it on a movie. I think it's on uh, Knocked Up or one of those. It's with Catherine Oh, Heigl. okay. Yeah, that Anyways. is Knocked Up. I mean, I knew about it way before the movie because <laughs> I have a perverse brain. Uh, anyways, I love remote controls and <laughs> and underwear. Okay. What, what, or what are we so doing? So this woman this is, now, is now okay, yeah. so shaming I just, you. Yeah. So I just got used to living to this internal conflict. What did you say? Like I... I just felt so ashamed. Did I didn't you admit know. it? Yes. Whoa. Totally. And she just tried, she just, you know, tried to lovingly walk me through it. Like, it's good when our sin gets exposed in the light. Like, that's a good thing. Like, she tried to help me not feel shame. You know, she was like just trying to be very open and accepting and warm about it to her credit. But we're, but it, there's still this labeling of like, that's sin. Sex is sin. You know, you're not married. That's like, that's not compatible with what we're doing here, which is. Which makes the ultimate goal marriage, not mm-hmm. wholeness, not completion. Exactly. Not, not, uh, oh man, mm-hmm. that you still need to find your worth. Yeah. Through the. Yeah. So I, I wow. think at that point in my life, I was just sort of waiting. I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I wanted to get married and I, I like, I wanted that. So I, I just was, I was like, you know what, that after that experience, I felt so much shame. I broke up with my boyfriend and because of that, um, 
Yeah, we both felt that that I conflict. See too. Yeah, and we were we were both we just both felt shame about it. We both felt that internal conflict, and I think we were just tired of feeling that lack of integrity. It's so sad that you, you know? couldn't even be connected to your partner because of the shame yeah. that was taught. That yes. both of you are flawed for desiring one another. And he was wonderful. He was like my favorite boyfriend I ever had before I got married. I like him. He was amazing. He's single now. I don't think no. I think he's married, and I think they have a kid or two now. Okay. I mean, I was going to send him a link. To I don't think, message. I don't think we'd be compatible now, but back then, like he, he definitely like, do you think he's, he would be on christianmingle.com? I don't know. Someone put me on there. Like someone stole my pictures and put me on christianmingle.com and really? gave made my name Hunter, which is a great name. Actually. <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> I was like, you put me on the wrong site. Like, <laughs> I mean, they weren't like, this is Mark Groves. This is Hunter. And I believe in no sex before marriage. You can tell from my smile that I believe in sex before marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Sex before, like, Sex all the time. Yeah, just anytime you want. Sex. Exactly. Safe, consensual, loving, fun, exploratory, All the things that we don't teach when we teach sex only when you're married. Like, if you want to use weird things, do it. Yeah, and also consent is a thing after you get married, too. It's not like... There's not a marital right like, like was taught. Not a thing. You know, historically, I'm not sure, like in teaching sex and doing workshops on it, one thing that was really fascinating to me that I learned about was that the graham cracker and cornflakes were actually invented to decrease sexual desire. Both of them were actually bland. They were not, they're not filled with sugar like they are now. Mm -hmm. And it was the idea, I believe it was, I forget what time, but it was in the early 19th century or in 1900, 1904 or something like that. And it came out because the food was so dull that it was to decrease your desire, which is kind of crazy because if I was eating boring food, I'd probably want to have more sex. So that doesn't really work well. But the it, it's so interesting how that was, that we were so afraid mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. that they even had tools like for preserving uh, virginity, like belts that you wore with teeth on like metal teeth yeah. and they had them on men and women, like a little thing that went around a, a big thing, I guess, that went around a guy's mm-hmm. uh, unit. And if he got an erection in the middle of the night, it set <gasps> off an alarm. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, it set off an alarm. Awful. And, like all of these things yeah. that are so. Okay, let's just say something right now. Yeah. Virginity is a myth. It is not real. There's nothing real about. Okay, so. You're listening, whoever's listening, we need, we need to like establish some ground floor truth right now. We can just get rid, we can let go of the idea of virginity as easily as we picked it up. Like we can yeah, just let it go. It's a construct. Nothing about your body changes like inherently, like nothing about the integrity of your vagina changes after there's a penis inside of it. Nothing, or anything. Nothing or anything. Nothing about like the the worthiness of who you are or or the value of your sexuality, like nothing. And it's all for you. It's for your pleasure. It's it's your choice to enjoy that and to interact with that that piece of yourself, that energy in you, however you want in a way that serves you and serves your partner if you're with a partner. But it's it's a myth. It's a social construct. It's it's like Ah, uh, it's yeah. I can't. It's I such just a fascinating. Yeah, no, I totally get I really you, and could. I, I think as we, as we have made it this thing that's associated with being purified, being mm-hmm. whole, being value, like increasing your value, mm-hmm. 
it's uh everything we do to like minimum even how people go and have sex with someone they previously had sex with so they don't increase their number mm-hmm. you know they do the old rebang because they don't want to get <laughs> above like nine or ten yeah you know and even how we do things like that mm-hmm. as opposed as opposed to like exploring sex and sexuality from a conscious intentional space yeah. with communication and and openness mm-hmm. about what we really want yeah because if you can't ask for what you want in the bedroom, it's a good sign that you probably aren't very good at asking for mm-hmm. what you want in life. Yeah. And that's why everything we sort of struggle with sexually usually is a struggle in everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if our desire goes down, that can be due to so many things. Mm-hmm. Even the constructs of where what we think about desire and arousal, all the research was done by men mm-hmm. and it was based on male arousal. Yeah. So we just thought, oh, well, everyone is like a man. So women's arousal is like... A man's too. So you experience <laughs> desire, arousal, yeah. desire, you do the thing and then your arousal drops. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you follow like a woman's arousal. It's like, wait, I'm still waiting. I'm yeah. still waiting. Mm-hmm. And when they actually released the research that was more modern, it was like, wow, there are so many contributing factors to desire. Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's, I forget her name. Come as you are is the book. oh yeah yeah. she's such a brilliant writer too she's funny it's such a great book and it's for females but i would Mm -hmm. say anybody read come as you are it's about like responsive versus spontaneous desire and Mm -hmm. all humans have different ways they interact with desire okay so you end up in college you break up with your boyfriend Mm -hmm. who's christian yeah you're a christian you then what well it was just like i'm not i'm not dating this anymore like I'm not. The I just Christian went part? all in on the purity thing oh. and it was like you fully, doubled down. I doubled the fuck down. How do you get your purity yeah. back? Well, Jesus, well, he like wipes it away. Like all your sin. Like you just, you know, you just, I, I was wow. like this rebound repenting all the time. Like, um, you were like breaking up and getting back together with purity. Pretty much. Wow. But this time it was like, okay, I'm for real. And I, at the time, um, found a church that was like, newly started by this really young couple who was, um, they were like a few years older than me. I I was 19 or 20 at the time. And I just decided like the next person I date, like I'm going to be super guarded until the, my husband just shows up basically marriage. Just, Oh, I, I wanted to get married. Like I, I wanted that truly. Like there, there were so many things about that time of my life that were good and that were just what I needed. Like, I want to hold the light with the dark. I don't want to just dismiss the whole thing outright Mm -hmm. because there were so many things in myself. I wasn't ready to face and didn't know how to. And the purity culture thing allowed me to feel safe in in ways I didn't know how to like create for myself. I know how to do that now. I don't need purity culture to, to save me anymore. Oh, um, from myself, but I, yeah. So I just met this guy in school at church one day and he was a couple years older than me. He's a wonderful man. Um, I was with him for 10 years and we, he, he was raised uh, Catholic like you and was evangelical Protestant at the time. Um, was a wonderful, wonderful man. He was so good to me. And uh, he loved me and he brought in all of his own ideas about, you know, sex and purity that were really similar to mine. And we dated 
not for very long because we like we like felt like we needed to hurry up and get married because we were very like lusty toward each other. Um, yeah, we got to put it in there. <laughs> and we got married fast, as fast as we could. Um, I, I was not quite graduated from college when we got married. Gosh, it was that was such a happy time. Mm-hmm. It, it really was. That's awesome. We like our our marriage was beautiful and sweet, and it w- it was such an escape from shame for me in so many ways. And also, he was lovely. And but I but I think we both did kind of because there there's still sexual shame after you get married. I didn't know that. I thought I was going to fully escape all of it. And then I was still ashamed when I got married because mm, uh, you were taught to meet this outcome. And then when you met it, it doesn't feel the way. Yeah. And I felt like I was letting him down that I wasn't a virgin when we met. Is he a virgin? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so he had like successfully saved that part of himself. Oh man. That just, it, it's fascinating how that re-injures the same part mm-hmm. of you of like, Oh, but there's something wrong with you. Yes. So I felt like the lucky one. And he was like, oh my God, this girl, she's so hot and sexy and attractive. Like he felt like he was the lucky one too. You know, it's like when there's like this, this worthiness imbalance in yeah. relationships. And you both have a story that is opposite of each other's story. Yeah. Like it's fascinating. Both are wound-based <laughs> stories. Totally. Meanwhile, you could both be like, we're so fucking lucky. Let's just, <laughs> let's fucking celebrate that. I know. So, yeah. So yeah, we were super involved in this, um, this church community for seven years. I mean, it was like our our best friends came from this space, and it was it was a beautiful thing for me. Like I said, like it just was just what I needed at the time, and I, but I also had such a difficult time leaving it, and I de- I developed not developed. I mean, I had always had this like codependency in me. I was codependent with my religion. I was codependent with my friends. I was codependent with my husband. Like I was hiding from myself and I used all of these things to keep doing that and, and perpetuated like a lot of these toxic beliefs onto other women that I discipled. And I like say that with air quotes, you know, that's Mm -hmm. like the system of mentorship in the church is it's like discipleship and and I, oh, I f- the regret that I feel about that now is, is like still so in my body. Regret about? Regret about like perpetuating that, that system of shame around mm-hmm. sex that, you know, we're supposed to wait till we get married to. And I think I just got even more extreme about it. Like don't have sex before you get married. Don't kiss before you get married. Don't what? like, don't yeah, kiss? don't do all the things. Don't like. It, and that, and like the harder that I was on myself and the more critical I was, it was like the more respected I could be. Like if I just kept, I, I just became obsessed with this like personal growth in a sense of just like always noticing my sin and being right? refined and yeah. And, so constricting. It's like yeah. winding yourself up more and more. It In my observation of my own experience with beliefs, but also the beliefs of other people, is that the more they feel inauthentic or threatened, the more they cling to them. Mm-hmm. And that's true politically. That's yeah, true religiously. Yeah. That's true spiritually. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, it could be true about our nutritional mm-hmm. beliefs of veganism versus meat eating, you know, like, and both sides can be yeah. in those spaces. So it's just fascinating that the, the more it feels like we're living in some form of secrecy. Mm-hmm. What is it? Brene Brown says that shame only thrives in secrecy. Yeah. Only in secrecy. But but the answer to me for shame at the time was just, oh, just keep abandoning. 
this like Run cling tighter to this other further away from who you are from all that you know about your past and your desire and i remember like reading a romance novel those are sexy they are. they're weird i get a little aroused from them is that weird <laughs> i just said that as you should like if it's a well-written <laughs> like i was like whoa i just moved from six to seven this is weird <laughs> For sure. And but I remember picking up picking up a few and like hiding that from my husband at the time and him like finding out and like forgiving me for it and me feeling like so happy that he forgave me. Yeah. So and, and I just oh like I wow. I haven't like read a romance novel in a while, but I totally would now. Like why not? Like of course. I, I mean it's just my outlook. Well, Fifty is Shades so- of Grey shows you how many people are actually living in a box. Oh. But like that book shows how humans really are, right? Not that we're all wanting to bang a billionaire who's kind of got a lot of fucked up shit going on. Yeah, dear God. But that we have these desires to explore the edges Mm -hmm. of our sexuality. We do. And just like that just being true. And there's Mm -hmm. no judgment. There's just like, hey, let's have Mm -hmm. some fun and and consensually explore whatever we want to. Instead, we have to explore it through books. And then we have to hide the book. Mm-hmm. And if the book gets found, I mean, I don't know how they hid 47 billion copies of that book. Whoever <laughs> bought those, it's a horribly written book too. Mm-hmm. That's what's funny. No offense. If the author listens to me, it's a greatly well-written book. English is <laughs> no, I, I don't have any problem with the author hearing that it's not. Yeah. Not but, book. but either yeah. way, they're like listening on their yacht, like flying from their helicopters, <laughs> you know, so they're like, yeah, fuck <laughs> it, who cares? <laughs> so it's fascinating though that that book had such because I think that speaks again to like we'll read something like mm-hmm. that, but we won't have the conversation of like, hey, yeah, because we have to stay hidden in it. Mm-hmm. Like I can. It's so cultural. It's not even religious. It's yeah, cultural. but it's, if, if, even if you think about it, like the popularity of a book like that, like it just speaks to the longing that we all have to see ourselves with acceptance. Mm-hmm. You know, like. But we're just diving into this other narrative and this other fantasy that someone else kind of gave us permission to explore because, wow, this book exploded in popularity. And so, okay, let's dive in because that is like somehow socially acceptable. But like if I admit my own fantasies and my own desire and my own like curiosities and, you know, all of that, then, wow, I have to feel dirty and unacceptable and abandoned within myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's even just like, since my divorce, God, navigating dating and sex and all of that for me now is, is so different. <laughs> it's so different. And, and I don't even like, I remember going back to Israel shortly after I left the evangelical church, like within that first year, because I was, I just thought, you know, deconstructing and kind of undoing your beliefs can be so threatening when you've connected all of your purpose to like proselytizing all of that Mm -hmm. and converting people and missions and all of this stuff. And when I, when I left the church, it was because of the breakdown of some of my closest friendships. I didn't have that belonging anymore that religion was my ticket to. And so I was finally free to consciously examine my beliefs in a way that I didn't want at the time, but that I needed and I went to Israel with the most wonderful guide who had been through his own process of breaking down his beliefs and was just so open. And I got to see 
the the life of Jesus in a totally new way. It was like, I didn't, I don't think I picked up my Bible for two years. Like I just let it go. I had to do like this Bible detox, <laughs> like get it, get it all out of me. Um, so that I could pick it up again and not only read shame and it not be heavy in the words of yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Cause that was never how it was written. It was never written in that energy or that vibration. It's written in the vibration of love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the book wasn't written. Sorry. Well, but for, the from, life the, was lived for how that they understood vibration. that at the time. Yeah, yeah. Within their context and their culture, for sure. Sorry. I meant to say Jesus Christ's life was never lived in that vibration. Yeah. 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 No it wasn't. Prophets were us. None. None of the yeah. teachers Muhammad, were teachers of yeah. judgment. Mm-hmm. They were always teachers of love and acceptance. And yet that was the one thing I interpreted from the words of Jesus. When I was told I'm supposed to be interpreting nothing but acceptance and love, I I read so much shame into the things that he said to people in those in that text. And so it wasn't until I like put that down, learned some self-love, and went back to Israel you know, saw the places that he walked and like really heard the stories and understood stood the culture of first century Judaism that I understood, oh, wow, like he was born the son of an unmarried woman. And I let go of this narrative that she was a virgin, yeah. you know, and thought, wow, what an even better story. Like what an what even better empowerment. Yeah. yeah. Of, of, of such of, oh, of such beauty because all, what he wanted essentially in his life was to center the voices of the marginalized. Mm-hmm. That is what he wanted. He, he was the marginalized and all he did was minister to those that were. And what a different version of the story oh, in a way that feels light goodness. and loving and open. And that allows his mother, Mary, to actually be a woman. I felt permission to be a woman when I let myself reinterpret that story. And and by the way, like when we er- erase that that piece of her humanity, we also erase her story. We don't know the circumstances around her getting pregnant. No. We don't know what those were. We don't know if that was consensual. We don't know if... Um, if if she enjoyed that experience, we don't know what kind of expression that was for her. Um, so much of her story has not been told because mm-hmm. power erased it. Yeah. And just as I erased my own my own story. And so anyway, I I just became I allowed myself to become connected with what felt like the true essence of his life and sort of like tiptoed back toward Christianity in a totally different context than I had before. And I I remember the day that I reinterpreted the story of the woman at the well who, you know, she'd had, you know, multiple sexual partners. And, and I think Jesus could just see etched into her face the ways that she was hurting. And I had interpreted that story when he says, you know, go home and sin no more that he was telling her like, quit committing adultery. Like, I'll wipe all your sins clean. Just go home and just stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And oh, I just don't even feel that. I don't feel that from him anymore. I don't think he even cared what her sexual conduct was. Maybe or, the sin was the hatred for oneself. Yes. I think I think yeah. that sin, which by the way, um, historically was just a label. It was a scapegoat label for those marginalized people that they had to wear as a way for people in society to, if things weren't going well, they would use that word as a label for the marginalized to blame them for like, oh, we, 
things aren't going well. God is not being good to us and it's your fault. Mm -hmm. So those are the sinners. So sinner is inherently a word of shame. Shaming, yeah. But I think spiritually, the way that I've begun to understand the word sin is it's, yeah, it's just, I just reject love for myself. I believe that I'm not loved. So when he's going and saying, go and sin no more, like, allow yourself to be loved. Be a human, to make mistakes. Completely, regardless of what you're what you're doing or what you believe about your sexual choices or what anyone says, like, and of course that would, that would change the posture of a woman, you know, of, but, but women then their position in society was so different. They had to be dependent in a way um, that we don't always have to be now. And, but she not, she had to feel shame about that. She had to feel like she was a sinner and I think that he, all he wanted to do was release her from shame, even if nothing in her life changed. What it's in the continuation of the experience of sexual shame, but also relational shame. Yeah. You know, like so much of a woman's self-worth we've placed in her ability to keep a family and a relationship together. Mm-hmm. And I say that with empathy for totally. anyone who identifies with that. It's just often yeah. more true for women. Mm-hmm. And that, now you face the the processing of divorce yeah. within old stories. You know, mm-hmm. like I think we've normalized divorce as being like it's more normalized now to experience divorce, but within the constructs of r- anywhere that mm-hmm. culture and religion often intertwine, they're often synonymous. Yeah, where we shame divorce, we shame relational endings, and then also make that about someone's worth. Yes. And in your processing of that, have you had to deconstruct, you know, some of the things that you were taught in order mm-hmm. to face your truth, in order to reclaim yourself, in order to accept this this form of ending? Yeah, for How sure. How has that been? Uh, this transition out of my marriage. So my divorce was final five, five months ago, mm-hmm. six months ago. You know, I didn't feel nearly the level of shame that I would have felt if I had still been a part of the Christian system or the even really the evangelical church that I was a part of. Um, I also think that if I was, I wouldn't have allowed myself to get divorced. And I don't think he would have either. Um, so that choice that we made was, was a choice of freedom, but what I felt, and it, and it was a choice that has served us and that we needed to make. But what I, what I have felt is the, oh, just the pain of stigma and that hurts that that silence has been loud there are, you know i'm just going to like let myself feel this loneliness in my chest and i don't you know dislike anyone i'm not mad at anyone but there are people that just they haven't word and um, and you know, when you're getting divorced or when there's a death or there's just like a major life event, like you can't just go and just tell everybody, like it's, it takes so much energy to tell people. Um, but there were places where it just would have been nice to like hear from so-and-so or so-and-so. And I, and I didn't, and that silence, that of feeling stigma is, and I stigmatized it when I was married. I did like half of our population that gets married and his kids gets divorced. Mm-hmm. and. I knew none of those people when I was married. I only had married friends, you know? And so now being on the other side of that and feeling like I'm in this in-between place, you know, most of my friends are either single without kids or 
they're married with kids and I don't, um, there's a, there's a, a difficulty in like finding where you fit as a single parent. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So the stigma on divorce just feels sad. Uh, a lot of me feels committed to smashing stigma in every way that I know how by just showing up. I think that's the only way that, that we release stigma is people just show up and we listen to their voices and we hear their stories and we humanize what we have othered. But yeah, I mean, the, the version of Christianity that I know now can hold space for me as a divorcee. Mm. Yeah. That's the virgin, the virgin, the version <laughs> of, I don't adhere to a specific label of yeah. religion, but the, the spirituality mm-hmm. that I practice has space for every yeah. aspect of being a human. Because everything belongs. If you, right? if you made a mistake, you should be loved because mm-hmm. that's what you need. You yeah. know, the last thing we need when we are going through the, the, destabilization of a relationship ending or Mm -hmm. a belief system crumbling or the last thing we need is judgment for our for being lost Mm -hmm. you know as opposed to being like let me be the anchor that you can just know that you're safe but you can float and you Mm -hmm. can explore but i'm here to remind you that you're still worthy Mm -hmm. and i it's so empowering and you only learn this by doing Mm-hmm. It's so empowering to begin to reclaim your worth where you have made what other people think about you, what you think about you. Yes. And when you start to see mm-hmm. what is true versus what you thought was true, mm-hmm. there's an inner knowing that says, I am a divine yes. loving being. I do my best. Mm-hmm. I try. Oh, do I try? Yeah. And I'm okay. I'm actually amazing, mm-hmm. but I've been told I'm not. Fuck that shit. Yeah. Like reclaim that shit. And you've been told that it's sin or that it's vain Ugh. to think that, you know, to love yourself. And um, I'm I would love to know just to hear you speak to this. I think you spoke to this in a past podcast episode, but just um, you know, lon- longevity doesn't really mean that much about the health or the success of a relationship necessarily, obviously. Yeah. Right. Cause it doesn't. we need to feel free versus... to end relationships. Yeah. As they need to. And, but what would you call, what, what allows you to walk away from a relationship feeling like, Oh, that was a successful experience. Like what makes a relationship a success? If it's not, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years married. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I had to process that, of course, because my relationship we both was are. almost four years. Yeah. And for me, that is, I looked back and I just said, did I do the best I could? Mm-hmm. Did I show up and love all out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why the ending of it, there's nothing I would do differently. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I could have done better. Yeah. I I lived at my highest level of knowledge throughout the whole experience. Yeah. And that's why when we, when our relationship ended, she didn't take me with her. Mm. She didn't take how I feel about me with her. We still have you. Yeah. Like I've yeah. lost a relationship before where I've lost myself, mm-hmm. but because my relationship is not my life, 
It's a component of my life. It contributes to my life. Yeah. I contribute to it, mm -hmm. but it is separate from who I am. There's still a loss because, you know, if it composes like 10% of what you are or whatever, mm -hmm. there's still a space. But in that space is still me, you yeah. know, and instead I just look back and go like, okay, what can I learn? How did mm -hmm. she teach me? I mean, she's easily my greatest teacher thus far in my life. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I think just with that is like a level of, I have to separate myself from the stories I've been taught. Mm -hmm. And again, it's always this practice of like, is this true? Is the length of my relationship indicative of how I feel about me? No. You can meet someone and date them for six months and them transform your life more than anyone. Mm -hmm. And that's why a relational depth to me matters so much more than length. Length is certainly an indicator of relationship success, but it is not the indicator of relationship yeah, success. That's sure. an old model. That's an old model that shames divorce. That's an old model that needed marriage in order to keep systems alive. And mostly blamed women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, back in the day, you couldn't leave a marriage unless you yeah. were being abused and you had to prove that. Mm -hmm. And then a government body in Canada had to approve of your mm -hmm. divorce. Mm -hmm. As soon as the divorce act came in, people were like, peace out, bros, sprout. Like, I ain't sticking yeah. around for this shit. And we treat, I think we treat male and female, men and women divorces a little differently too. Like I was on a, I was on a date once. I only went on this one date with him, but he actually asked me the question, like, so like, have you been in your head about this whole like kid thing? Like, are you worried about what I'm going to think about how you have kids? And I think he was trying to be sensitive and hold space for something. And I was like, no, no. I feel great about the fact that I have kids. <laughs> I'm not nervous about that with dating, but I know that you seem to think I should be. And, but like with, with men, it's like, oh, it's so sexy that you have kids. <laughs> you're like tender and sensitive yeah. and vulnerable you're like a good dad <laughs> but with that's women hot. it's like oh you've got this baggage you know and or that's just that's the narrative or those are the stigmas that yeah, um, women tend that. to feel with dating and but we, we just put so much of the burden i think of relational success or failure on women like for them holding the family together like if if kids are having a hard time. It's like, Oh, what's happening with the mom. <laughs> and, and I, and I just think that it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the earlier part of this podcast. Like the nurturing part of me is so welcome, you know, like that part needs to be successful because that part is what feeds people. But the other places of me where I, I give to myself and I just enjoy myself and I just am who I am and I'm expressed and I bring all of my life along with me and all of my story along with me. Um, taking up space in that way and connecting with people who want me to um, and opening up space for them has like, that's been the, the journey of like the single woman mm. for me. Um, and it's a journey that I did not let myself go on as a young woman in, you know, in college, 1920, um, which was the last time I was single before I got married. What a beautiful energy to step into <sighs> and dating so freeing, with. So freeing. And, and when it comes to my marriage, like I really have allowed myself to see that as a success, even though I don't feel like I, I loved all out in every sense of the word. I don't feel like I always did my best. I, I mean, I do believe fundamentally that we are always doing our best, yeah. you know? Um, but I have needed to integrate some of the ways that, 
you know, I like didn't feel like I was kind to him when I was experiencing postpartum depression and stress and all kinds of different things and the things that were like the biggest stressors on our relationship. But I do, but I, but the question for me of, and the marker of the success has kind of been now that I'm out of it, am I connected to myself enough that I can feel respect for who I am and not just feel shame that it's over? Can I hold space and allow myself to integrate all of the things that I know now that I didn't know then? And, and, and truthfully, now that I've learned new things, can I not just go to self-hatred mm-hmm. for having that's, been wrong? That's a familiar home. Right? Yeah. Because yeah, it's like, I, I want to be able to say, oh, I was wrong in some ways. You know, I, I was wrong in the church to perpetuate these beliefs I had that were that feel so wrong now. Um, I now know better for myself. I know what my integrity is now in a way that I didn't before. But I, but I'm so good about going straight to self hatred when I feel like I was wrong. You used to be good about it. You mean? I, I'm still. You're I, still good at. I, I can't, like that's something I have to keep in check. Honestly, uh, yeah. like the capacity to just hate myself for fucking up. You know, um, or for you hurting someone. Yourself and that. And that. Who um, stands between those two things? Between like knowing you can do better and hating yourself for not having done better. I, I think just identifying the self-hatred truly as a coping mechanism. Like that's that inner hurt little girl that just wants to drive the car of my life, you know, with reactivity. And she wants to find belonging again. And she wants to find a path to the security that she wants. Self-hatred was her path. Mm-hmm. It was. Continued evidence for unworthiness. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like, let's just prove the old stories here, you know, but, but I can mother myself now and I can say, oh, you know what? I was wrong. Maybe like I, that doesn't feel true to who I am now. And I can just keep learning. Like I can grow. Oh, there is, there's room to grow. There's room to ground in more of my essence. There's room to say, you know what? I'm just perfect as I am now. And let, let the, my body feel the ease of that. Like, mm. I don't have to change to be accepted and to be lovable. And also, I do want to live aligned with my highest truth of who I am. Like, I want that. And you, I think I'll- You are that. Yeah. And so I will feel grieved when I make choices that violate the integrity of, of me experiencing that truth, you know, that might hurt me or hurt somebody else. And I feel that day to day. Well, in time, the, you know, in that pain is the gift of, of wisdom. And, yeah. you know, I look back at all my relationships in my whole life, uh, including my most recent one and, and do ask like, where could I have been different, better? Yeah. I have definitely way less of those in the last one, mm-hmm. but in all of those experiences of, of how could I have done something differently is a call yeah. to expansion. Like, if you know something to be true and you don't grow towards it, then you do not honor the integrity of that yeah. knowledge, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's where I find I would stay stuck in shame yes. or stuck in pain is because I haven't integrated the thing I don't want to turn towards because yeah. I have shame for it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being like, that's that's the lesson. Okay, bring it along. And I've only learned that through time. I mean, God, if I had said that to like 28-year-old me, he'd have been like, uh okay let's go to the bar I know. <laughs> it's so, like... 
Let's go listen to Shaggy. Oh, Shaggy. I don't know. That's, that really so dated me, right? Yeah. Way to go. <laughs> People listening are like, he's so old. No, I remember Shaggy. I totally do. Um, that was even yeah. from college, actually, now that I think of Shaggy. but Totally. You know, that's a... The gift of life, though, is that you're going to fuck up, and that's yeah. Thank your fuck ups, man. They're mm-hmm. here to teach you. There and there's space for them. Like there is, like that thing that you think is so unforgivable about you, like that thing that you did that you that you feel like has to stay hidden forever, or that story that you're afraid will be exposed. Like whatever it is, like it all actually can be held. There is space for it. It's all human. Like mm. all humans are made of, of humanness. Like we all have, yes. Yeah. And that's okay. I think there's like this, when you were asking what sort of stands between the, you you know, learning new information about yourself, admitting that you were wrong and then not going to self-hatred, what stands in between those two things. And I think for me, what that is, is this like fundamental trust now that there is space in the world for me to be human. There, there's enough love fundamentally, and I encounter it like here with you, and I encounter it like everywhere that I am. There's enough love for me to not know what I'm doing and to fuck up and to learn better and then to still fuck up in the same way <laughs> because we tend to do that. We tend to learn better, and then we still mess it up a few times before we really learn it. You yeah, because we haven't changed. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. it c- kind of takes a few times, and I just feel like there's room. There's room. Yeah, like I can be exactly. just as loved no matter what. And I think that was what I needed to learn at the beginning with the purity culture and all the things. And I think that was the intention with religion. It was like, I see the intention in it to, to fundamentally teach. Yeah, you are lovable. You are acceptable. It's just that we don't need the line that comes after that, which is in spite of who you are. We don't need that part. We'll just toss it. You're just lovable. You're just acceptable all the time, always. Just for being you. Yes. Yeah. Actually, especially for being you. Yes. Especially for being you. I love you. I love you too. Fuck yeah. That was... Well, that was that was a good hour and a half Was it? Oh my God. I've been talking that long. Wow. I know, right? Okay. Great. Through the glory of God. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for all of you uh, listening, yeah. thank you for exchanging time. Yes. Which you cannot get back. I know. For this. And Jules, Julianne, thank you for being here. I'm thank very grateful you. for you for sharing your story uh, and your truths and going to your edge. It's beautiful and inspiring. And so many people mm. are benefiting from you sharing your story and owning it. So thank you for supporting me in that. I feel like as much as I have felt like I needed to stay small, you've been one of those people that's like given me room to expand and help me feel permission in myself to feel heard. I love you. And I so believe in you and what you're doing. Well, there is nothing I love more than watching anyone who, especially a woman Mm -hmm. step into the power of her voice Mm -hmm. and to watch as the ricochets and the reverberations happen yeah. I, to be able to stand in honor of that is, is truly just such a pleasure. Thank you. So thank you for sharing who you are. So where do people find you? Oh, um, good. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> you know where they find you, right? <laughs> sure. What's your Instagram? Do you want I'm like so in the other vibration of this conversation. Um, yeah, my Instagram is I like do writing and I share with women and it's a beautiful community. It's just jules.weber, J-U-L-E-S dot W-E-B-B-E-R. Um, and I primarily do one-to-one coaching with women as an intimacy and life coach. Do you have um, a website? I do. It's JulesWeber.com. Bam. Anywhere else? Anything else? Uh, The website, the Instagram, and there's actually a group program starting in January that I'm so excited about. So if you're curious, ask me. um, Where do you get it? On your website or Instagram? Um, Just both. Yeah, it's on both. It's on the website and it's on, um, you can DM me. It's on the, you'll see it. Amazing. If you show up Work with her. Step in your badass self. (laughs) Fuck yeah. I love all of you listening. I'm Love so grateful to have this experience, to be able to talk about things that are real sensitive, yes. but also be like, okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. Let's just hold all of this in grace. So yeah. with grace. With grace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.